0: When you think about the world we live in today, if you were to describe the state of the world that we live in in one word, just using one word or one short phrase, what would that word or phrase be? End times. times. Okay, yeah, I've had that thought recently. Could this be the end? What was that? Under Under attack. Yeah. The world definitely under attack. Say again. Fearful, I still didn't hear the first word. Satan? Satan? Okay, so just Satan in general and then being fearful. Yeah, all of this stuff, these things create fear, right? Because it could happen anywhere. Dallas, Texas is pretty close to home for us, you know? And so what else? Any other words or phrases that describe the world we live in? Chaos, yeah, absolutely. Unbalanced. Unbalanced, that's a good one. Yeah, definitely unbalanced. Immoral? Anybody else? Say again? Joyful? Joyful? It can be, yeah. Every morning morning can be until you read the paper. (laughs) Yeah, you don't, that's probably smart. So, you know the one word I didn't hear this morning was the word peace. Why, Why do you think that word didn't come up? when you think about the state of our world today, why didn't anybody say peace or peaceful? Yeah. It's harder to search for it. We don't feel it. It's the main reason. I don't feel peace. I feel uncertainty, imbalance, all these immoral, all these words that you guys said. Yet the Bible tells us or teaches us that peace is a dominant theme in Scripture. In fact, uh, God's Word contains at least 400 direct references to the peace and many more indirect ones uh, You know the Bible opens in the Garden of Eden with peace and closes with peace in eternity Yet we know that peace in the Garden was interrupted by sin When man sinned, sin entered the world and disrupted that peace Yet at the cross Jesus made that peace a reality again And becomes the peace for all of those who place their faith in him and accept him as savior. He restores at least an internal sense of peace, right? But one of the obvious facts of history and of our experience in this world is that peace does not characterize our experience here, does it? doesn't seem to, not on a regular daily basis anyway. And so I came across this, uh, you know, the the scarcity of peace has prompt, and I don't know who gets credit for saying this. It's kind of a bad joke, especially in this time. But uh, the scarcity of peace has prompted someone to suggest that peace is that glorious moment in history when everyone stops to reload. Yeah. It's kind of a bad joke, but it kind of hits home today, doesn't it? We can maybe, maybe we could rephrase that and say uh, peace is that glorious moment in history between terrorist attacks or between shootings, between blank. Because that's about the only time we we almost feel or sense peace is, you know, between the time that the, the young lady lost her life and the mass shootings, there was a day or two there that maybe we felt peace because nothing was happening. We were just reading. But as soon as we're kind of starting to feel peace, the next story happens. And then we're, you know, we're taken aback by it. We're shocked by it. And then maybe we feel peace for a couple days and then the next, you know, and then we kind of repeat this cycle. And so in the, in the world that we live in, we, we don't have economic peace, we don't have religious peace or racial peace, social peace, family peace, or sometimes even personal peace. There, you know, and there seems to be no end to the marches and sit-ins and riots and protests and demonstrations and attacks and wars that we're hearing about. So I think you would agree with me that disagreement and conflict – are the order of the day. And if in the history of our world we ever needed peace, now's the time. Right? Would you agree with that? I mean, do you, feel, do you feel the weight of that? And so my question back to you, and, and I, there's not really a right answer for this, and there may not even be a short answer, and it's part of what we're going to look at today, but how do, how do we obtain peace in this chaotic world? What are some things that you think we can do to, to try to reach out and grab a little bit of peace here and there? Okay, yeah, just hanging on to the truth that God is in control. Yep, absolutely. Anything else? Anyone else? Any ideas on how we can try to reach out for peace in this crazy world we live in? Turn off the news, you said? Yeah, turn off the news. Don't read the newspaper, right? I'm actually going to talk about maybe doing that later in the lesson, but... (laughs) Well, so this morning we're going to talk, you know, as Christ followers, we have been called to make peace even if the way to peace, peace or the path to peace is through struggle. Kind of like it right here. It's like no light, <laughs> kind of right between, but I'm, this, room is, this side of the room is real heavy and this side is not as heavy, and I'm like, uh Anyway. Uh, I found this quote from Theodore Roosevelt that I think talks a little bit about this idea of, let let me restate the kind of the main point today that we're going to hit on several times. As followers of Christ, we have been called to make peace even when the path to peace is through struggle. So Teddy Roosevelt, way back in 1910, and many of you have probably heard this quote. I've heard it many times at conferences and other people reference it in speeches but he kind of talks about what it means to kind of enter into that struggle in and, and, and hopes of seeking peace. And it's kind of ironic that he presented this speech in Paris, France, which is where many of the terrorist attacks are happening, or in France, where many of the attacks are happening these days. Uh, he said, It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither knew victory nor defeat. And I love this idea. At the beginning of the quote, he talks about the credit belongs to the man who enters the arena. You know, And if we are to make peace, and if our way to peace oftentimes leads us through struggle, We have to enter the arena in order to do that, and sometimes that means we're going to get a little bit of blood, a little bit of sweat, and a little bit of tears are going to come through that. Uh, Before we go much further, though, because this is not an easy topic to talk about, and I, I kind of want to get a feel from the room. How many of you would consider yourself conflict avoidant? Like, I hate conflict. I want to avoid it at any cost. I don't want to deal with it. I'd rather just call a truce or make peace and not have to deal with it, right? So a few of you, probably not quite half. Why, why do we avoid conflict? Uncomfortable? Did y'all both say that? Okay. <laughs> I mean, immediately, they both say... Unco- conflict is uncomfortable, right? And so a lot of times it's easier to avoid the conflict or avoid the struggle than it is to engage in it or enter into it. It's what? Yeah, the struggle is unpredictable. You don't know which, where it's going to go. You don't know the outcome. When you enter into something like that, you don't know what the outcome is going to be. Yet, as I said a minute ago, as Christ followers, we have been called to make peace. And oftentimes, the pathway to peace is going to be through struggle. It's going to lead us right into conflict. And so for those of us who are conflict avoidant and we, we don't want to deal with it, we'd rather sweep it under the rug or just not... Address it uh, this is going to be a little bit of a challenge for us for those of those for those of us who love conflict and enjoy it and, in, and get a you know rush out of the fight or whatever. Uh, I think maybe this will show us that there there may be better ways to enter the conflict without necessarily looking to to fight and enjoy the struggle, but that the goal should be to obtain peace through that struggle. so if you have your Bibles or your phone. Uh, we're going to spend some time in Matthew chapter 5 this morning, and if somebody would do me a favor, uh, I don't have a watch, I don't see a clock in the room, if somebody will wave at me when it's, what time are we done, 10.30? 20 after? 20 after? Uh, at if you need it. Okay, well, if somebody will just let me know when we're about 10.15, so that I know we're close to being out of time. Uh, so Matthew chapter 5, uh, we're going to look at... The beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and the little section we're going to look at is what is referred to as the Beatitudes. And I hate to do this, but I'm actually going to have to put my eyes on. When I started teaching life group years ago, I could see. That's how long it's been. All these kids that are now teenagers that used to be in my married-with-no-kids life group class uh, age me, and now I have to actually put my eyes on in order to read because my arms aren't long enough anymore. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 3. Uh, So just a couple things about the Beatitudes themselves, and then we'll move on into where we're going to kind of spend most of our time today. Uh, Each of the Beatitudes, even though they stand kind of on their own, uh, each is linked progressively to the one that follows it. Uh, For example, if you go back to the very first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, the idea there is that spiritual bankruptcy, uh, someone that is in spiritual poverty, you recognize your own spiritual poverty, and that without God, there's no hope in the world. And that leads you to, recognizing your own sin and that you cannot overcome that sin by yourself, that you need some outside help, and that outside help is God. But when you recognize your own sin because of the spiritual poverty that you're living in, it causes you to mourn. And so it leads right into the next one. And then, you know, I wish we had time to actually, you know, go through each one of these. Uh, but if you've never studied the Beatitudes, they're a great study, and each one does lead to the next. Uh, the second thing I'll say is that the second half of each statement, the kind of the rewards or the benefits of, the, of each Beatitude – Uh, are all mentioned in the future tense, except the first one and the last one. The first one says, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The next six all say, for they shall. Blessed blessed is this person, for they shall, for they shall. Some future hope, some future tense. And then the last one, for those who are persecuted, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven again. So the first and last are present tense. All the others are future tense. The first four kind of deal with our relationship with God. The second four deal with our relationship with others and the world. And so it's kind of this idea of love God, love people, that our church, the vision of our church, this fits right into that. The first four deal with our relationship with God. The second four deal, deal with our relationship with the world. We're going to spend our time this morning in verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, because again, I'm going to say this at least probably five or six more times. As followers of Christ, we are called to make peace even when the way to peace is through struggle. So my question to you, when you think about this idea of making peace or being a peacemaker, how would you describe the difference between someone who is a peacemaker versus someone who is just a lover of peace or a peace lover? Take an action. Which one would be the one taking action? Peacemaker. Peacemaker. Right, okay, so being a peacemaker is active. That's good. What else? What's another difference between peacemaker and peace lover? If you need some help with the imagery, think 60s. Picture the decade of the 60s in your head. First thing that comes to your mind, so, Gary's laughing. Gary, why are you laughing? What, what did you think of as soon when I said 60s? Yeah. <laughs> the peace movement, right? And what was the big deal about the peace movement? Yeah. Flower child, free love, the idea of loving peace, right? But there was no active engagement, as he said, active engagement in making peace, right? So that's kind of the difference in my mind is that the peace lover refuses to face a situation and take the necessary action that that situation demands, where the peacemaker actively faces that situation or actively engages in that situation and takes the necessary action that that situation demands. So just a couple things about peace uh, from the Bible. You know, it comes from the, the Hebrew word shalom, which you've probably heard many times. But peace is more than the absence of conflict. And strife. It is, it is the very presence of righteousness. When Christ entered the world and hung on the cross for us, he, he provided peace for us over sin and death and replaced that with the righteousness that, we, that is imputed to us from Christ. So it's more than the absence of conflict and strife. It is the presence of righteousness. And I love this. He says, peace is a creative, aggressive, to his point. Peace is a creative, aggressive force, but it's a creative and aggressive force for goodness, And the deepest meaning of this term, at least biblically speaking, is that it is God's highest good to you or for you. And again, peace does not come from the evasion of issues. It comes from facing them, dealing with them, and then conquering them. And this is exactly what Jesus has done for us. You know, you don't have to turn there, just listen. Isaiah chapter 9, we're very familiar with this passage of Scripture. We hear it every Christmas uh, but it talks about God entering the world. He said, for, us to, uh, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So the promise there in Isaiah is that there, there's going to come a Savior that will bring this peace to the world to us. And then in Colossians, Paul talks about this. In chapter 1, he says, And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, meaning he came and overcame death. Two of the things that he did on the cross was overcome death and sin, right? So he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So aren't you glad that, that God isn't conflict avoidant and that, that he entered our conflict, entered, entered the world after sin? You know, when he created the Garden of Eden, everything was perfect and everything was at peace because there was a perfect relationship between man and God. Sin entered the world, broke that peace, broke that relationship between man and God, and then Jesus, through his work on the cross, restored that peace because he overcame sin and he overcame death. And so because of that, uh, I think that speaks directly to this beatitude about being a peacemaker, and this beatitude then demands of us not the p- passive acceptance of things because we're afraid uh, of the trouble of doing them or afraid of, of what might happen, uh, but that we actively face those difficult situations uh, because, as I said, as followers of Christ, we have been called to make peace even when the way to that peace is through conflict. So, when I was in eighth grade, I had just moved to a small town in East Texas, so I was the new kid, didn't know anybody. And being in a small town, there's not a lot of kids in your class, not a lot of people for you to kind of make friends with and all that. So I'm meeting people, met a couple guys, and we're out. I want to say playground, but that doesn't sound right because I don't think you had recess in junior high. Uh, But in our small town, the the junior high and the high school were in the same building. On this end of the wing, on this wing was the junior high building, our hall. It was one hallway (laughs) for 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, all in one hallway. Separated in the middle of the building by the cafeteria and the gym, and then on the other wing, we're already at not ten fifteen. Holy cow! Uh, uh, well, okay, uh, at the other end is the high school. Well, so at the at the end of the junior high wing, there's about a half acre of land between the road and the school, and then between the front parking lot and the back parking lot. And so we, at lunch and before school, that's kind of where the junior high kids always hung out. And I think this one day we were playing football or something, and uh, me and this other kid that I just met, I don't know if we ran into each other or bumped into each other or I intercepted a pass or he did something. I don't remember what the conflict was, but all of a sudden we're nose to nose. You know, if you do that again, I'm going to do blah, blah, blah. And i well, I'd like to see you try, you know, and, and we're, like, literally about to come to blows. And either we were too scared to throw the first punch, both of us, <laughs> or we were smart enough to not throw that first punch because there was probably a teacher or something standing right there. But we didn't come to blows that day. We just stood face-to-face, and I think maybe we finally talked ourselves out of it, ta- talked ourselves down. But to this day, uh, that kid from eighth grade, his name is Brad Wilson, and uh, he is the best friend that I have in this world. And I actually used that story, and he, and he had a very difficult time uh, after high school and college. His, his life took him into a place that uh, many of us would not want to go, and I maintained friendship with him through that time. And when about seven years ago or so, he was around 40, uh, decided he was going to go back to school and go to law school. And in order to get accepted, he not only had to take the exam to get into school, uh, but he, because of his age and the distance it had been since college and law school, he had to get some letters of recommendation. And I actually wrote a re- letter of recommendation for him, and I used that story as, as part of my recommendation, saying that I knew that that day that if Brad and I were going to be friends, that he was going to be somebody that wasn't afraid to enter conflict, and that he would make a stand when it was necessary, and that he would have my back if I ever needed to enter that conflict. I knew he was going to be that kind of guy, even though we didn't come to blows that day. And I'm not suggesting that every time you want to encounter, every time you want to achieve peace, you have to go through some kind of physical fight. That's not what I'm suggesting. But uh, since we're running out of time, I'm going I'm to move on a little bit. Uh, so real quickly, I, w- I want to hear from you. Can you think of a time when you had to endure a similar struggle but achieved peace as the outcome, whether it was a fight or whether it was something at work or with your spouse. Because we, Do you ever have conflict with your spouse? Okay, I don't either. What about your kids? Do you ever have conflict with your teenagers? Okay, good, because I don't either. But so why are we talking about this then? <laughs> but, so can you think of a time where or you've ever had conflict with your boss at work or your employees if you are a boss? Yeah. So can you think of a time when you had to enter conflict, but the result of that was struggle? Or uh, you had to enter that struggle, but the result was peace? Yeah, right. There's a level of endurance that has to be maintained, right? Because the goal is what? The goal is peace. The goal isn't the fight, isn't the argument, isn't the struggle. That's just part of it, right? But endurance allows us to reach the goal, which is of peace. So we're pretty close to, to, I'm I'm in good shape, I think. So let let me, a couple more points. Uh, Another example for you real quick, and then then we'll kind of wrap up. Uh, Many of you probably know Philip Newman. He's a member of this church. Him and Robin go to this church. They help with our uh, youth ministry as well. Uh, They have three teenagers that are in the youth ministry, uh, Hannah, Cole, and Grace. Great, great family. He and I have been best friends almost since we moved to Georgetown. But it wasn't like that at first. Uh, About the time Kendrick was in third grade-ish, Philip convinced me that I should coach Little Dribblers, that he would be my assistant, but he wanted me to be the head coach. So I agreed, and we were coaching. And, again, I don't remember the specific details, and this will kind of speak to how competitive I am because – I just admitted that my daughter was in, like, third or fourth grade, and this is little dribblers, right? This is not the NCAA Final Four National Championship game or anything like that. So I'm coaching, trying to help my girls do something, and Phillips, only one coach is allowed to stand up on the sideline, so that was usually me, and he was sitting, and he said something. I don't remember what it was, but I remember probably taking it the wrong way. And I'm not, a, I'm not proud to admit this, But I turned around, and so the coach is sitting here, and all of the other third graders are sitting right next to him, third grade girls. So I turned around and say something to him that wasn't pleasant, and I probably used a cuss word. In fact, I know I did. And all of these girls are sitting there. So now I turn back around, and now I'm not only mad, I'm embarrassed, and how am I going to deal with this? And he's still talking and yapping back to me, and I'm trying to coach. I'm listening to this. And so call timeout, whatever, I'm kind of ignoring him at this point. If he wants to talk to the kids, I kind of just walk away, and then I come back. Well, after the game was over... This was the last game of the day. And if you've ever been involved in little dribblers, especially the young age, you got the goals, the eight foot goals that hang over the 10 foot goals. So we have to take those down because not only are you a volunteer coach, you're also part of the cleanup crew if you have the last game that day. And so we're taking the goals down and taking them back. (laughs) This is embarrassing. We were in the junior high boys' locker room. And after coaching third grade girls' basketball and having this little incident in front of them on the bench, and we're in the Boys locker room about to come to blows over it. We're in there. I locked the door. We're yelling at each other, and I can't believe you said that in front of the team. And well, I can't believe you did this. And I can't believe you said that to me and used that word. And so we're and he goes, I just screw this. I'm leaving. I don't want to, you know, I'm just going. I locked the door and stood right there in front of him, and I said, Philip, we are not doing this. I said, You and I are friends. We have chosen to be friends and we 're not leaving this locker room until we resolve this, and probably took about another ten or fifteen minutes of people banging on the door, the other people trying to get their, <laughs> trying to get their goals into the locker room because they want to go home and so But we resolved it, and again, to this day, Philip is one of my very best friends in life, but it was because I or both of us we were both willing to enter the conflict, and we were willing to Do whatever it took to endure the struggle, even though it was uncomfortable. I hated every minute of it. I was embarrassed. I didn't like it. There was nothing about that struggle that was enjoyable. But the outcome was I have one of the best friends in my life because of that. And I know that if a situation ever arises where I need to enter the struggle, there are two people I know I can call. I can call Brad Wilson I can call Philip Newman, and they're going to enter that struggle with me no matter what, no questions asked and they're going to stand beside me, and they're going to endure no matter what it takes for me to achieve the outcome that is desired, which, of course, is peace. And so I share that with you because I, I just think it is possible, though we are, we are called to be peacemakers, and the way to that peace most times leads us through struggle, it is possible to achieve peace through the struggle. Uh, so ha- in a way of application and kind of wrapping up, uh, the ways that we can kind of actively, actively engage the struggle around us to become peacemakers. Uh, and I'm just going to list these for you, and then uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be done. Uh, and I know the first two are going to these are very churchy answers. But, it, you know, sometimes I think of, as Christians, if we actually applied the churchy answers to our lives, we might be better off. Uh, the first one is we need to pray. First thing we got to do to be a peacemaker in this world is to pray. Every morning, if you have to set your alarm five minutes earlier to get up and pray, if there's not enough things for you to pray about in this world, you're not paying attention. I mean, did you, you remember all the headlines I read at the beginning? You could start there. There'll probably be a new one tomorrow, unfortunately, as sad as that is. Just turn on the TV for five minutes. You'll have something to pray for about in this world. Well, what that does, though, is it sends the message to our brains, to ourselves, to others, to our family that that we trust God above all other forces in this world to direct us, to direct our future, and that he has our good in mind, and that we're going to trust him with that, even though we don't understand and can't, sometimes can't see the good in the world. And then, honestly, if you get up and you spend five minutes in prayer before you head out for the day, that kind of sets the tone for your day. You know, And I'm not talking about getting up an hour early and disrupting your pattern or what. I'm talking about five minutes. Sometimes I pray while I'm taking a shower. It's kind of multitask, right? It's kill two, two birds with one stone. But make it an effort, a conscious effort, to pray every day. The second thing is read every day. And this is going to go back to where he said not to read the paper. Gary said to turn off the news. I'm going to suggest as part of engaging in our world that at some level you have to pay attention to what's going on around you, Right? And so read every day. Obviously, part of that is, is reading the Bible. Take time every day, whether it's in the morning or at lunch or in the evening, but make sure that you, that you read your Bible. And, and I've heard, and I couldn't find who said this, but it, it has been said that the best way to engage in culture is to have the Bible in one hand and the newspaper or the news in the other hand. That way you, you know what's going on in the world and you can interpret it through the Bible, not the other way around. You don't want to read your Bible and then try to interpret your Bible through what's going on in the world. You want to interpret what's going on in the world through your Bible. So read every day, read your Bible, keep up with the news. And then finally, just be willing to engage. Be willing to enter the conflict. Be be willing, as Theodore Roosevelt said, to enter the arena because that's the only way to achieve peace. Otherwise, if you choose not to engage, you're basically creating a situation where you may have what you think is peace, but it's really just a truce, and that's temporary. You know, you've heard the old saying, you bury the hatchet but you leave the handle sticking out. Sooner or later, if, if you don't engage in the conflict, if you don't engage in that conflict and seek peace, even though it may be through struggle, sooner or later that's going to come back around, and they're going to grab that and they're going to club you over the head with it. Think about when we lived through the Cold War. That's exactly what that we were so afraid, and Russia was so afraid that somebody was going to push the button because we didn't resolve. Peace wasn't reached. There we didn't we didn't engage the conflict, whether it was a, in a conference room across the table or a summit, peace summit or whatever. We chose to ignore it, both sides, and that's what created the Cold War that lasted throughout Reagan's presidency and, and beyond. And and now we live in a completely different world uh, where you know this. In fact, this week. I heard one of the news pundits actually declare or call what we're living in now World War III. This is what this is what World War III looks like. It's the war against terror, because it is global. It's not just France. It's not just America. It's not just Middle Middle East. Uh, so those are the things that you can do to engage uh, in culture and in. in I know we're running out of time, but I'm going to read this one last passage. If you want to write this down, you don't have to turn there, but it's Romans chapter 9. I think Paul gives us a great set of guidelines to use uh, to apply what we've learned in this beatitude to our lives. So I just want you to hear some of the things that he, that he says. He says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and to seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. And this is such an important point, he he almost restates it. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. I want to stop right there real quick on that verse. Mourn with those who mourn. Doesn't it feel like we're kind of getting immune to the tragedy that's happening in the world because it's happening so frequently? We kind of just, ah, it's happened again, and we just kind of accept it. But the Bible tells us that we should mourn with those who mourn. And I saw something on Facebook this week that really made me sad because it it really is true Uh, but it was one of those circle diagrams and at the top it said terror attack and then with the arrow to the next one it said hashtag pray for fill in the blank dallas orlando cops whatever so terror attack hashtag pray for circle to change your facebook profile pic to the flag or the badge or whatever it is you change your profile pic and then another circle up to this one, that says, life goes back to normal, and then a circle back to terrorist attack. That's the world we live in, isn't it? Something happens, we, we go to social media instead of the Bible, and we, and we tweet and retweet and we share and like and whatever on social media and can even change our profile picture to match whatever the crisis is of the day, and then... We feel peace for a couple days. Life kind of goes back to normal until it happens again, and then we're kind of caught in this cycle. But Paul goes on to say in Romans 12 that we should live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So can you imagine what the world might look like if we took this beatitude seriously and we, and we answered the call to be peacemakers in our day? even understanding that many times to achieve peace, we're going to have to go through some form of struggle. And if you read the next couple of verses after the Beatitudes, the result of that, if we, if we choose to live our life by those six or eight, eight verses, the eight Beatitudes, especially being a peacemaker in this world, we become salt and light. So God gives us the result right there in the next couple of verses that we'll be salt of the earth and light of the world, But we have to choose to engage. We have to enter the arena and be willing to seek peace no matter the cost and be willing to engage in the struggle. Let me pray for you. Thanks for letting me be here today, and I think Gary might have a couple announcements.